Welcome to Historically Thinking, a program devoted to all kinds of historical knowledge and to the ways that we achieve it. I'm your host, Al Zambone of the Department of History at Augustana College. Our website is historicallythinking.org, where you can subscribe, find more information about our guests, links, and related readings. Our email address is mail at historicallythinking.org. We'd love to hear from you. Hello. In the eighth year of the reign of Ramses III, Pharaoh of Egypt, groups of raiders attacking from both sea and land once again assaulted the sacred kingdom. And for the second time, Egypt fought for her survival on land and on the sea and won. But while the kingdom of Egypt survived, by the time it fought off the mysterious sea peoples, the rest of the eastern Mediterranean world had been devastated. Hittites, Mycenaeans, Canaanites, and Cypriots had all fallen. It was a collapse which brought about a first and more terrible Dark Ages and nearly erased the achievements of the great civilizations that had passed away. With me to discuss this great collapse is Eric H. Klein. He is the author of the acclaimed history 1177 BC, the year civilization collapsed, published by Princeton University Press as part of a series on turning points in ancient history. Eric H. Klein is a professor of classics and anthropology at George Washington University in Washington, D.C., where he is also director of the GWU Capital Archaeological Institute. A recipient of numerous awards, Dr. Klein has also authored numerous books, and link to these will be included with the show notes on our website. Eric Klein, thanks for being with us. Thank you for having me on the show. Well, there's uh, a lot to discuss in 40 minutes. Um, and uh, one of the things that we want to discuss, uh, since normally we're discussing uh, new books, um, is the really interesting, uh, as I was saying before the podcast or began recording, the sort of response history to the to the book. But let's uh, start by filling out the anecdote with which you begin the book and with which I began the introduction. It's the sort of, you begin mise-en-scene in 1177 BC. Uh, Ramses III, r- ruler of Egypt, is under attack. What's going on? Well, what's going on is that a uh, series of, of interlinked groups that we call the Sea Peoples had attacked Egypt for the second time. They had come through about 30 years earlier in 1207 BC, and now they're here again in 1177 BC, and that's uh, where the title of the book comes from. Now, these groups, um, the Egyptians named them uh, specifically. Uh, the Peleset, the uh, Weshesh, the Ekwesh, the Shardana. Uh, we know them, uh, but we don't know them. Hmm. Um, we're not sure where they came from, and we're not sure really where they went to. Uh, people have tried to associate them philologically with places like Shard- uh, Sardinia for the Shardana, uh, Sicily for the Shekelesh, and so on. But to be honest, we're really not sure. Uh-huh. All we know is that these groups attack Egypt in 1177, and that Egypt wins. In fact, they win both times, in 1207 and 1177. But en route... While they were en route to Egypt, the Sea Peoples passed through, it looks like, Greece, Turkey, Cyprus, Canaan, that is Israel, Lebanon, Syria, 
uh, and wiped out those areas before they got to Egypt. We know this in part because the Egyptians themselves say this. They name a number of areas, um, including Cyprus, uh, western Turkey, and central Turkey, and even the coast of northern Syria. But the rest is kind of supposition. Um, the idea that the Sea Peoples had brought the late Bronze Age to an end had already been formulated um, back during the early days of Egyptology. Gaston. How, how early? Well, Gaston Maspero uh, had really solidified the theory by 1901 and had you know, started talking about it earlier than that. Uh, and so every time a city was found and excavated uh, that was destroyed at the end of the Late Bronze Age, they said that the Sea Peoples had done it. Now, that's actually backwards from what you're supposed to do, <laughs> because in this case, they had created a theory from an inscription that was written on the walls of Mendet Habu, Ramses III's mortuary temple, and from that had then fit the evidence to it. So uh, I think, and one of the things I say in the book, that the Sea Peoples are not actually the cause for the entire destruction of the known civilized world at the end of the Late Bronze Age. Uh, not by themselves. They may have been one of the causes among multiple, but I also think that they were victims as much as they were oppressors. Uh -huh. That is, they began moving for whatever reason, and um, you know, as they were moving and migrating, caused destructions. But they're not the bogeyman that they had been made out to be. Right, I, and, and we there are many analogies that can be made to the better known Dark Ages, uh, but certainly the migratory tribes of Ostrogoths, Visigoths, Vandals, and Goths, Goths um, often are being pushed by someone else. Maybe the Huns, and maybe the Huns are being pushed by Ava, and so on and so on. There's always it's hard to figure out causality, and and they're moving for other reasons than just you know for the hell of it. Yes, and also sometimes they're moving because of Mother Nature. I mean, right. think of think of the 1930s and the Dust Bowl here in the United States, where everybody moved from Oklahoma to Texas and California, and. Think now of the waves of refugees in Europe that have come out of Syria because right. of the civil war there. So, yes, there are any number of reasons for people to start migrating, but the end result is uh, almost always chaos on the other end. Right. So let's. most of your book is uh, really discussing the glory that was the late, late Bronze Age and then explaining, uh, then teasing apart what happened. So let's, let's uh, focus upon the um, uh, glory of the late Bronze Age, which is um, across a canyon from us in many ways now, isn't it? Um, Mm -hmm. It's 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 it seems familiar and yet distant. Um, it's a mythic past in some ways, and you try to demythologize it and make it real, and and do a very nice job of that. What are some of the principal kingdoms of the late Bronze Age? Yeah, excellent question. Um, well, this has been a period that uh, I've been studying now since graduate school. In fact, my thesis way back when, my dissertation was on international trade and connections between uh, Mycenaean Greece and the uh, entire Near East, including New Kingdom Egypt. So the the 
interesting things. The you know the rise of these civilizations has always been of interest to me. What I didn't realize, and we'll get to this, I think, again later, was the interest that other people would have in it as well. So when um, I was asked to write this book about the collapse of the late Bronze Age. I, I asked my editor, Rob Tempio, if I could write about what had collapsed as well, because to me that's absolutely fascinating, and it shows some of the things that were lost when everything collapsed. So in the middle part of the book, the chapters uh, on the previous three centuries before the collapse comes are concerned with people like the Mycenaeans and the Minoans in the Aegean area, that is Greece and Crete, the Hittites in Turkey, central Anatolia, the Cypriots of Cyprus, the Canaanites that are up in what are now uh, North Syria and stretching down into modern Israel. Uh, Also, as I mentioned, the Egyptians uh, of the New Kingdom period, and then uh, over in Mesopotamia, in nor- in what we would now call inland Syria and Iraq, we've got Mitanni, we've got Assyria, we've got Babylonians. These are what I call the G8 or the G9 of the ancient <laughs> Bronze Age. And even these uh, groups, as I understand it from you and from others, uh, are often uh, shorthand for describing a variety of people. Is that correct? I mean, in a way, there's no such thing as a Mycenaean. There are lots of different people who are under a sort of that we label as Mycenaean. Uh, Minoan is like sea peoples, a word that we've applied to them. They might themselves be Mycenaeans or they might not be. Uh, Yes, a lot of this is us projecting back. Uh, Your examples are good ones. The Mycenaeans are not one unified kingdom, although the Hittites seem to have thought they were, but they were, in fact, a series of small kingdoms, Mycenae, Pylos, Tyrans, and so on. Uh, Remember, Homer calls Agamemnon the king of kings, which Mm -hmm. is a good way to put it. Uh, The Minoans seem to have been on their own, Uh, They were taken over by the Mycenaeans, maybe as late as 1350 BC, but certainly before the end of the late Bronze Age. But there again, we don't know the relationship between the different palaces at Knossos and Hanya uh, and Kadozakro and other places. But you do have other people as well and other languages. I mean, recently uh, in the news has been the idea that there's been a new Luvian civilization found. But in fact, we've known about the Luvians for a hundred years, and I wouldn't call them a civilization. They're in Turkey, but they're people that speak Luvian. On the other hand, you've got lots of people that speak Luvian in ancient Turkey at that time, primarily the Hittites. So you're right, this is kind of code, um, and it isn't sometimes code from our point of view. Uh, For example, as you said, Minoans, that's our name for them. In fact, that's what Sir Arthur Evans called them after the mythological King Minos. We don't actually know what the Minoans called themselves. Mm-hmm. Well, it's better than calling them, you know, X people or something like that, I suppose. Um, yes. uh, a lot more uh, colorful. Um, so these are the the G eight, the G nine. Um, do what are their the, and what? Back to the, your dissertation work and a lot of your work in the in the book. What are the connections between them? What are they exchanging back and forth? <laughs> it's more a question of what aren't they exchanging. Okay, yeah. Especially when you get to the high point, which I would say was the 14th century BC. 
the um, 1400 about 1350 or a little bit later this is the period when we've got uh, pharaohs ruling in Egypt for example that people have heard about even those that that think originally oh I don't know anything about this period they look kind of shocked when I say well have you heard of Hatshepsut the the famous uh, pharaoh uh, Egyptian female pharaoh they're like yeah sure like, well, have you heard of Akhenaten, the heretic pharaoh? They're like, yes, of course. Like, when you have you heard of King Tut? They're like, yes. I'm like, all these people are in the 14th century. You see, you already know it. And they are trading back and forth. They're sending international embassies. They've got diplomats going back and forth. They are um, marrying each other's daughters to cement peace treaties. Uh, and we, we know about this not just from the archaeological finds, but we actually have written textual evidence. And we have, for example, uh, an archive of royal letters at Amarna in Egypt. It's uh, modern Amarna. It was the capital city of Akhenaten, the heretic pharaoh. He was only there for you know maybe about a decade before it was abandoned. And they left behind this cache of royal letters between the great kings, the king of the Hittites, king of Assyria, king of Babylon, king of Cyprus, and the Egyptian pharaoh, but also with the lesser kings, the vassal kings in Canaan. And it gives us a real snapshot into what's going on at those levels. And as I say, there are mentions of dowries and royal weddings. There's also mentions of divorces uh, and all kinds of interactions. So I actually tell people that their life back then was far more similar to ours today than they might expect. So they are exchanging finished goods. They're exchanging raw materials. And keep in mind that you need tin and copper to make bronze at this time. Right. But you also need gold, you need silver, you need lapis lazuli, um, you know, you need all kinds of things to make life worth living if you're up on the royal uh, sphere of things. Talk about talk about tin for just a second, because that's a, a fascinating uh, point. Yeah, tin uh, in the ancient world, um, my friend Carol Bell, uh, who's in England, uh, once said that tin uh, at that time was as important as oil is today, which I think is a perfect parallel and analogy. The tin, most of it at that time, is coming all the way from Afghanistan, the uh, Badakhshan region of Afghanistan, which is, in fact, where Lapis Lazuli comes from as well. So we know that it's traveling overland uh, hundreds or thousands of miles, we've got a text, a written text at the site of Mari uh, in what is now Syria on the banks of the uh, Euphrates. And it has written in it the fact that the tin has been brought there and is now going on to the port city of Ugarit, which is in North Syria. And there a delegation of people from Crete will be waiting for it. And that they will trade for it, and they're able to talk to them because there's an interpreter there that speaks the necessary languages. And then the tin, of course, is going to go on to places like Crete and mainland Greece and will be combined with copper, which is from Cyprus. That's where the name comes from, Kypros, huh. and 90% uh, copper, 
10% tin, and lo and behold, you've got bronze. So Cyprus was uh, was the, the source of copper? The major source. There are other places you can get copper from as well, but most of the copper at this time uh, that has been tested seems to come from Cyprus. Sardinia's also got some, and we definitely know that they're importing that too, but for the most part, Cyprus seems to be the, the primary area. Um. So that explains the importance, I get then, of the Cypriot kingdom, that it has a lock on a very, well, a near lock on a valuable, valuable resource. Yeah, absolutely. And there are also middlemen in the trade because very frequently it looks like the ships going back and forth are stopping at Cyprus. So we actually have um, one text in the Amarna letters, uh, which uh, the king of Cyprus apologizes for only sending uh, about 200 talents or oxide ingots of copper. And he says, all my men have been sick. I'm, I'm really sorry. Well, 200 of those ingots, they weigh about 60 pounds each. Mm -hmm. So if he's apologizing for that being a small shipment, they must have really been sending out a lot of copper. Mm -hmm. What, um, just parenthetically, who's in charge of this trade? I mean, who benefits from it? Are the merchants? I mean, the king? I mean, is this, are are copper mines in Cyprus, they're part of the royal uh, ownership or, or how's that work? Do we know? No, we don't actually know. It's a very good question, and scholars have been spilling ink on this for a very long time. Um, Whether such trade and such control is in the hands of the royals, or whether it's in the hand of private merchants, or whether it's private merchants that are being sponsored by the palace, or, you know, any other combination in there. Personally, I think it's a combination of things. I, I think in order to have Um, such mines being operated, you need to do it at the highest levels. So I I wouldn't be at all surprised if these raw materials are in fact in the domain of the royals. But I also think that you've got private commercial merchants um, doing some of the trading. And in fact, we have a written text from Ugarit, again, the site in northern Syria, which talks about a merchant named Sinaranu, who has sent a ship from North North Syria down to Crete in about the year 1260 BC. And the text says that when his ship returns from Crete to Ugarit, he will bring the grain and the olive oil and the beer to the palace and he won't have to pay taxes on it. Hmm. So we know a couple things. One, a private merchant is in fact having a ship going back and forth. Two, they're already importing beer and olive oil and grain all the way from Crete. And three, I think we've already got a corporate tax exemption more than 3,000 years ago. (laughs) Some sort of rent-seeking behavior uh, (laughs) is already at work. Oh, I mean, and that they have an import tax too, that there's a source of revenue to the royal treasury. That's fascinating. Um, you uh, argue that actually uh, one of the one of the consequences of the collapse that uh, could be underestimated is that not only trade is interrupted but the exchange of information. Uh, what sort of information is being exchanged? How do they benefit from one another's information trans? Then how does the network convey information? And what sort of information does it convey? Well. 
Yeah, excellent question. One thing we've got to realize, there are a number of networks that are uh, in action at this time. You've got the trading network, um, you've got the just the, the traveling networks, right? You have to get from one area to another. But I do think you also have kind of an information superhighway at this time. And I think that goes part and parcel with the trade and the objects. Um, for instance, if you are sending a ship with cargo from one country to another, it is going to be manned by a crew, either of your nationality or a mixed nationality. And when they get to the other port, let's say you've got something going from Egypt to Mycenaean Greece. When they get to Greece, they're going to be sitting there while the cargo is unloaded and a new cargo is loaded on and the goods are sold and all that. And then maybe waiting for the wind to change. So your sailors are going to be in the inns and the bars in the port city, and they'll be drinking and swapping tales and ideas. So I actually think that you've got in uh, interchange and exchange going on at various different levels. Uh, and in fact, we can see this in a more modern parallel with the, uh, the cooler ring and the Trobrian Islanders, which um, Malinowski studied, uh, where the chiefs are, ex- you know, they're exchanging uh, bracelets and, and, and necklaces uh, in the in the in the huts, while the people on the that manned the the boats were actually exchanging food on the beach, and that was really what they were doing was exchanging the food. Um, but the bracelets and the armlets were kind of a cover for that. So I think that this explains a lot of the influences that go back and forth. For example, the Hittite myth of Kumarbi uh, bears resemblance to Hesiod and some of his works. The Epic of Gilgamesh has things in common with the Iliad and the Odyssey. And those are exactly the sorts of things that I could see merchants and crewmen in the bars swapping as tales, and you're getting influences going from one culture to another, maybe even in ways that you didn't expect. So I would think that there's these exchanges going on, even at the mundane levels, uh, which we don't have records of, because all we've got are the royals telling us what they did. Mm-hmm. What, um, if you had to sum it up very briefly, what would, were the great achievements of the late Bronze Age, um, just Prior to the collapse, what are they doing particularly well and notably? Well, um, some of the usual things that we associate with um, civilizations. I mean, the, the the Minoans, for example, seem to have running water in their houses. They had a sewage system. Um, they are doing, as, as we've been talking about, international trade with everybody. They have laws. They have diplomacy. I mean, um, this is the time period, actually, it's a little bit earlier, about 1800 BC, when we've got the law code of Hammurabi, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, and penalties for killing people and all of that. We've also got mathematics, we've got astronomy, uh, we've got many of the trappings of what we would say are necessary for civilization today. And much of that is lost when these uh, civilizations go down. I mean, in many areas, they they suddenly forget how to write, right? Um, which is not surprising because probably only about 1% of the population could read and write anyway. Uh, when you get rid of that 1%, the other 99 are, uh, you know, suddenly or are still illiterate. Mm-hmm. So let's get to the collapse. Um, 
we discussed the Sea Peoples already. Uh, you said that they are probably a consequence of other events. Um, one potential culprit of many, this is a confluence of events, so we have to be uh, it's clear. Are what you've referred to as, or well, it's the term is not your own, but it's earthquake storm, which I had never heard of. Um, what is that? Right. Yeah. And earthquakes are just one of what I call overall a perfect storm of events. Um, but an earthquake storm. It's a name, I first heard it from Amos Knorr at Stanford, with whom I wrote two articles in, uh, about oh, 15 years ago now. Um, in modern parlance, people who study earthquakes talk about an earthquake sequence, which is when you have an earthquake, but it doesn't release all of the pressure on the fault line. So sometime soon thereafter, a couple of days, a week or two, maybe even a month, you'll get another earthquake right next to the first one on the same fault line. And if that one doesn't succeed in releasing the rest of the pressure, you'll have another earthquake and another and another basically unzipping the fault line until all the pressure is released. And that can take up to about 60 years. And then everything starts all over again with the pressure slowly accumulating, probably for about another 400 years, and then the sequence begins again. And so we can see this, for example, on the North Anatolian fault line, which goes across the north of Turkey. There have been a series of earthquakes since 1939, and they seem to have culminated so far in the devastating earthquake that happened in 1999 outside of Istanbul. Mm-hmm. So, uh, modern seismologists know about these earthquake sequences. And what some of them have done, including Amos Knorr at Stanford, have said, you know, if this happens now, it probably happened in antiquity as well. And so they went looking for these. Uh, and sure enough, they found some, one that devastated uh, Cyprus, uh, you know, a couple thousand years ago, like in the fourth century AD, if I remember correctly. Um, but they call them earthquake storms to differentiate them, to signify that that's in antiquity. And so uh, when I was out, I was teaching at Stanford on a postdoc, and I heard about what Amos Nora was doing. So I went over and I chatted with him. And we ended up getting together and studying this period because it turns out that for about a 50-year period on either side of 1200 BC, there are a series of earthquakes that hit in uh, mainland Greece and Turkey and what is now Israel and Syria. And um, a lot of the devastation at the cities that was attributed to the Sea Peoples, we actually thought might be from earthquakes instead. And you can see this at Mycenae and at Tiryns, at Troy, at Ugarit, at Megiddo, and a number of other sites as well. So how, so how can you tell the difference as an archeologist looking at the evidence between uh, say sea peoples uh, smashing up a city and uh, earthquakes? It can be very difficult, very, very difficult. Um, there are a number of um, points that you can tick off that indicate that it might be an earthquake, not conclusive, but might be, including if you have an archway uh, and the keystone has slipped uh, out of the middle of the archway, that's one. If you have walls that are tilted over Mm -hmm. and at an angle that they're not supposed to be, if they are now kind of 
uh, undulating, whereas they were supposed to be all right. straight. Yeah. You know, all, all of those indicate. But for me, the main thing, and this is what I based it on when we published our study, uh, the sites where you have bodies of women, of children, of men, that are underneath collapsed walls or collapsed ceilings, and they are lying there dead. They've not been retrieved. Nobody came to get their dead body, and there's not a weapon in sight. Mm -hmm. No arrowheads, no spears, no cuts on the bones. It's pretty obvious that they were killed by collapsing buildings. And for me, that's a very good indication that it's probably Mother Nature and an earthquake rather than humans that have done this. But again, it's very hard, and you cannot say definitively in most cases one or the other, um, unless you've got the weapons. Mm-hmm. There are sites like Afek in Israel where you have arrowheads in the walls. At Troy, in Troy 7, there are arrowheads in the walls. That's humans. But where you don't have it, you have to be careful because, as we say, absence of evidence is not evidence of absence. If you don't have weapons, it is probably an earthquake, but not necessarily. You uh, mentioned already that there were climactic changes uh, going on in this period. Um, What do we know about climate changes from those really useful Greenland ice cores? (laughs) Well, those are not as useful as you might imagine. (laughs) What we actually have is useful information from closer to home. Uh, And this has appeared just in the last five or six years. There's been um, pollen cores taken, a group uh, led by a guy named Kaniuski out of France, uh, took pollen cores at a site in North Syria and in Cyprus. And in looking at the pollen in those cores, which are from dried up lagoons and lakes, they can tell that the um, climate went drier and there are plants that are adapted to more arid conditions. Suddenly around the year 1200 BC, which lasted for up to 300 years. Hmm. Now, um, this actually shouldn't be too surprising. Reese Carpenter had already suggested in the 1960s that it was climate change and drought that had ended the Mycenaeans, but he didn't have the evidence to prove it, and this now does. There are um, other examples. Uh, Cores were taken from the Dead Sea in Israel and the the Sea of Galilee, and they also indicate a drought there uh, from about, well, it's over by about 1100 BC, so it's faster there. It's only a century or a century and a half. But also over in Greece, there's uh, now evidence, for example, that the temperature of the surface of the sea changed, which would have led to less rain in Greece. Mm -hmm. So in the last, since only about 2010, we now have evidence from close to home in these regions that they were suffering from drought, which we would call today climate change. Now, a couple of other things, though. One, it's confirmed by the written texts because uh, they are talking in Ugarit and in the Hittite text up in Turkey that there is famine. Now, famine doesn't always follow from drought, and it could be caused by something else, but usually famine follows drought. I mean, that's what happens. So we know that there is famines in this area, and that probably is 
what caused it. So um, the other thing to remember, though, is that this is climate change caused by Mother Nature. Right? Some of the people that have read the book have written in thinking they're very, very funny, saying, what, the Hittites had SUVs and that's what caused uh, climate change? Yeah, well, we, we used to believe, we used to, back when I was doing medieval history, we, we talked about climate change all the time back before. Uh, yeah. Um, uh, it, I don't, yeah. Anyway, it's become in, almost politically incorrect to talk about non-anthropogenic climate change, but lo and, be, lo, lo and behold, it, it, it existed and has always existed, um, and here it is. Right, and it has the same effects. It doesn't matter if it's human or Mother Nature. The end result is everything dries up. Yeah. Things happen that aren't supposed to happen. Yeah. Um, and, it, and, and non-anthropogenic uh, climate change does not negate anthropogenic climate change either. We should uh, right. point, point not logically, uh, not logically connected. So, um, so drought, famine. Um, you s- make an interesting point. Uh, there don't seem to be any plagues or disease, which, gosh knows, whenever else there are invasions and climactic changes and famine, um, there usually is disease. Yeah, and this surprised me. We've got everything else. You know, we've got a perfect storm of calamities. <clears throat> you know, we've even got, as you just mentioned, invasions, probably by people set off from trying to get away from the drought and the famine in their area and moving around. But we do not have evidence of, of disease or plague yet, much to my surprise. <clears throat> in fact, so much so that I don't even mention it in the book, uh, at least not into the new afterward that I added when the paperback came out, because there were people that said, where's the drought? Where, oh, all right, we got the drought, we got the famine, we got invasion, where's the, where's the plague, where's the yeah, disease? Yeah. And we don't have that. We, ha- we don't have any mention in the written records. We don't have any you know, mass burials or anything like that. <clears throat> and that does surprise me. It, yeah, it's definitely the curious incident of the dog that didn't bark in the nighttime. Yeah. Now, having said that, I will also say that I will not be surprised if we do come up with, say, a mass burial somewhere. But the only evidence that we have in terms of written text, they talk about the Hittite royal family being decimated, uh, Shupi Luliuma. Uh, and his family. But that's back in 1350 BC. That's a good century and a half before any of this took place. We do have one slightly later Egyptian pharaoh, one of the Ramses, dies, not dies, but his mummy shows evidence of smallpox. That's in about 1140 or 1130. But there is no proof that he died from the smallpox. It simply looks like he had it, mm-hmm. but that's the only instance that we've got. Mm-hmm. So I am the first to admit that I'm surprised we don't have it, but for the moment we don't. But uh, I suspect that may well change uh, with some excavation in the future. Mm-hmm. Um, I, here, just to confess my ignorance, um, do you... Have you found mass grave sites? Do people find mass grave sites and other in ancient sites at like Megiddo or or Troy, um, where you find lots of people buried because of a war or a, a, a potential famine? Well, um, not usually. No, there was um, a discovery a couple of years ago 
down in Egypt at the Hyksos site of Avaris, where they found a bunch of right hands, like 16 right hands. Okay. <laughs> they had been obviously cut from um, people killed in battle and taken back as trophies. Um, no, the nearest that we've got is something that actually was in the news very recently, uh, so much so that it's not in the book. But up in Germany, at about the same time period, 3,200 years ago, 1200 BC, there is now evidence of a huge battle that was fought at a river there. Mm -hmm. uh, and they've only excavated something like 5% of the site. But based on that, they're um, anticipating that there are hundreds, if not thousands, of uh, warriors that were killed there. And, I mean, it's really neat. You can see there's an arrowhead sticking into somebody's skull, another one that's in an arm bone. Uh, and this is the same time period, but it's very far away from where we are in the Mediterranean. It's up in Germany. On the other hand, if this is um, something that's related to climate change, that affected even up in in you know Europe, uh, it may all well be part of a an even larger picture than I've painted in the book. Yeah, what uh, we're starting to run out of time, so I want to uh, race ahead a little bit. Um, you um, you're an ancient historian. Um, let me just give you an analogy. My father uh, always washes dishes from left to right because that's the way you work in a lab. Um, he, he does everything from left to right. So it's a, it's a way that he thinks, The way that one of the ways that he sees the world is left to right. Um, how do you see things differently because you're an ancient historian? Uh, I, I, reading your book, I was thinking of the many, many differences between a, a modern historian and an ancient historian. Um, certainly you look at, as an archeologist, you look at, must look at lands, landscape very differently. Yeah, I look at a number of things rather differently, but this is where I consider myself both an ancient historian and an archaeologist because, you know, my PhD is in ancient history, but my undergraduate and master's are in archaeology, and I've been digging almost every summer for the last 35 years. So what I do is I incorporate the two of them, uh, and when I teach my ancient history courses, for example, I frequently tell the students that ancient history is archaeology plus texts, and there you've got the ancient history, because, you know, where else do you get the stuff? Well, you dig it up and you find the artifacts, and then you also dig up the ancient texts, and then you translate them. So those two, I think, go hand in hand. I don't, you really can't do ancient history without the archaeology, uh, and you, you can't do it without the written text also. But one of the ways that my training comes in is that uh, I think I'm very skeptical, maybe more skeptical than some, because at some point in my training, I was taught, and none of my professors will fess up to having taught me this, but um, I will usually not believe something until it comes from three different types of evidence. So, for instance, when I'm looking at an event in ancient, <clears throat> sorry, in, <clears throat> when I'm looking at something in ancient history, I will want um, archaeology, I will want a written text, and I'll want something else. Uh, so this comes in, say, more often than not, when you're doing something that falls under biblical archaeology, you know, Abraham, David, whatever. Um, and there you would have the biblical account would be one source, archaeology would be another, and an extra-biblical source, say an inscription of Ashurbanipal, 
or Sennacherib would be a third source. So when I've got three separate sources all confirming the same sort of thing, then I'm happy as a clam, and I'll say, yeah, that probably happened. Yeah. If I've only got two, I'm less confident. And if I've only got one, I'll say, well, this may have happened, but there's no confirmation yet. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, that's prudent historical skepticism, it seems to yes. me. Yeah. Yes. And I think that's what historians do very, very frequently. So, uh, but as I say, none of my professors will will admit to saying, I told you except three. I'm like, well, maybe I made it up. But no, I, I don't think so. I'm pretty sure I learned it somewhere. I explicitly say that to students. I call, I call it triangulation, like trying, yes. tr- trying to find your way by a GPS satellite. So you need three of them within uh, vision of your cell phone to get a, a perfect latitude and longitude. Absolutely. I, I like that analogy. That's a great one. Um, you... Uh, how long has the, the book been out now? It's uh... Uh, the book came out in April of 2014, so we're just over the two-year mark. But the paperback with a new small afterward came out in September 2015, so that's not even uh, a year yet. You've had a um, a really tremendous response uh you probably weren't i mean it's very gratifying when it happens uh but i i dare say that you probably um didn't quite expect this you've been interviewed and interviewed and i mean is that right i mean yes absolutely right this is i would i never i would never have believed this i never would have dreamed of it never would have thought it possible i mean a book on the late bronze age who except archaeologists is going to care but it does seem to have hit a nerve i mean it sold more copies than all of my other books combined and um certainly gotten more readers responses on places like amazon than anything else um why that is is a good question. I think in part it's the title. Um, 1177 BC, the year civilization collapsed, is one Excellent. of those titles that you know gets your interest and you pick it up going, what, why, I've never heard of this. Um, and I do explain in the book that to some degree uh, that's not actually the year it collapsed. It's just a, a touch point, just as 476 is the touch point for the Roman sure. uh, Empire falling. But it's shorthand. It's academic shorthand. I think where it resonates is that um, w- a lot of people today are very worried about our civilization and world collapsing and the fact that um, you know a lot of people see us running the world into the ground. And I do make um, analogies to the ancient world. Some people say I push it a bit too much. I would disagree. I think it's perfectly valid to make the comparisons. They were just as globalized in their own way back then as we are today. They were just as interdependent on each other uh, and on raw resources as we are today. Uh, They do a lot of things like we do, as I mentioned earlier, marriages, divorces, embassies, embargoes. So uh, in the book, I said that it it may be surprising, but we might want to pay more attention than you might expect to similarly intertwined civilizations that collapsed 3,000 years ago and just see if there's any lessons for us today. There may be and there may not be, but this is not just ancient history. I do think it's relevant to today. So I don't know if um, I tapped into a 
fear of people today or just an interest, but certainly it has um, reached a much wider general public than I ever expected. But I'm thrilled by that. The more people that know about Shupi Luli Umush and, <laughs> and Tudhalia, the better, right? Yeah, yeah sure. Um, just uh, in conclusion, uh, what's the biggest difficulty? I mean, you've now got lots of reader responses. Um, you've got lots of Amazon reviews to read. Um, but what's the biggest difficulty that you think that people have in understanding the ancient past? Um, the big thing that people are complaining about, the you know the people that give it ones and twos on Amazon instead of fives, are keeping the names and the dates straight. Um, the people that are not really into ancient history say, I can't keep it all straight. That's the biggest difficulty people have is names and dates? It, that's what they're complaining about. I can't tell Tutalia from Tutankhamun. They should I, become historians. I can't keep names and dates straight either. It, yeah, well, at the end of the book, I included a whole list of dramatis personae names and when they lived and what they did and because I knew people were going to have trouble but still I'm like people look at the back of the book and really if that's your biggest problem look we can overcome that all right let's let's try a more serious bigger problem what's your biggest problem as you try to uh, comprehend the ancient past is it the distance away from today is it the what what is it as you as you as you struggle to make sense of the evidence in front of you the biggest problem, I think, is our lack of evidence simply because we haven't found it yet. Right? It's very difficult to try and reconstruct history if you don't have all of the absolute evidence. And, of course, when you're doing archaeology, you're not sure that you've got absolutely everything and that uh, things can change tomorrow from what we know today. Yeah. That's, the, that's the beauty of archaeology also. Yeah. But to say definitively something and then to have it completely overthrown tomorrow or next week by a new discovery um, is both neat and frustrating. Yeah. So, so I th- the difference then between sort of my really modern history, which is 18th century, uh, compared to you, is that um, sure histories change over time, but that's often in response to Vogue's traditions. What our society is preoccupied with, um, we have a pretty good understanding for the most part of the facts, say, of Bacon's Rebellion in 1676, Virginia. Uh, you could. Something could be found in the desert somewhere that completely change uh, the whole idea of Akhenaten and his religious heresy. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, absolutely. And as I say, that's both good and bad. But a lot of what we think about in the ancient world is simply an accident of discovery. <laughs> I mean, take the Minoans, for example, on Crete. Yeah. We, we don't know if, who is ruling it. Right? We're not sure. Is it a matriarchy? Is it a king? Is it a priest? Is it a priestess? Uh, and maybe, maybe, maybe one text that finally is able to be read will tell us who's ruling there. But for the moment, we've got no clue. And, and again, as I said, that's what I love about archaeology. You never know. And the next season may bring answers to, to, to questions we didn't even know we had. Well, my guest today has been... Eric H. Klein. He's a professor at George Washington University in Washington, D.C., and we've been discussing 1177 B.C., the year civilization collapsed. Eric, thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure. Thank you for having me on. For more historical thinking, go to historicallythinking.org, where you can comment on today's program and find show notes, links, and readings 
related to today's conversation. Historically Thinking is recorded in the studio of WAUG, the student radio station of Augustana College. Our program's editor is John Ruddat. Beth Leinbach keeps the schedules in sync. Matt Lehas keeps WAUG studio running. I'm your host, Al Zambone. Talk to you next week.